When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamond. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you, Rob? I'm feeling self-taught. And I know for the people who are fact-checkers out there, I did do a master's for a year in history of art. So I'm not technically Mm -hmm. self-taught anymore. But for the predominant part of my life, from the age of Mm. about 11 onwards, until Mm -hmm. I think I was 29 when I did my master's, I was actually self-taught when it comes to art. And as are you, no? Mm -hmm. Big time. I didn't have Christie's. I didn't do a master's. So I'm legit self-taught. You are. You're 100% self-taught, whereas I'm like 90%. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think when I did my master's, I actually took a lot of what I'd learned myself. And that that mm. is where my passion lied in a way, all the kind of things that I was into. But today's mm. guest is someone who has championed and also put on exhibitions and done international art fairs with self-taught and overlooked artists. And we are so excited to be able to speak with her today because talk art is not just about one type of art or one type of artist. We've always said it's art for everyone. And the more we've been doing the show, I feel like one of the great things that's come out of it is how much we're learning all the time and i know that you went to the outsider art fair in new york York. this year which was in january wasn't it yeah and i have experienced working with an artist that was kind of on the outside of the mainstream art world in some way but somehow they kind of adopted her that was stella vine do you remember years and years ago oh yeah Um, yeah, yeah. i used to help her out a lot and she did actually end up doing a show at modern art oxford so she kind of went mainstream in a way and i think the newspapers and you know media used to write a lot about her but she was pretty much self-taught and also her whole perspective was quite kind of you know on her own and she was a really unique kind of character I, I loved her a lot yeah i remember um, those, and still yeah. do i just haven't seen her in a long time but yeah mm-hmm. so i feel like you and i share something with today's guest so um totally. which is an interest in supporting overlooked artists so we would like to welcome to talk art jennifer, jennifer gilbert hi guys hi jen hi jen <laughs> how are you i'm all good thanks how are you good where do we find you in the world you find me in a very rainy manchester Oh, it's raining. It always rains in Manchester. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Always. So for our listeners, you run a gallery called the Jennifer Lauren Gallery and your name is Jennifer Gilbert. What is the Lauren? My middle name is Lauren. So I thought Jennifer Lauren had a bit more of a catchy, a bit more of a catchy sound to it. So yeah. Good one. 
That's very nice. And when did you open your gallery? So it's been running for three years now, but I've been working with artists in this field for a very long time. And how how did you get into um, this field of artists, this, this, this part of the art world? I guess I'm an artist by trade and I studied graphic design and illustration at St. Martin's in London. And when I was uh-huh. at university, I found a book in the library about outsider art called Raw Creation by mm. John Mazels, who's the editor of Raw Vision magazine. And I think right. it grew from there. So my dissertation stemmed around the place of outsider art in the 21st century. Mm. And I started working with artists with schizophrenia in uh, local community art classes, doing sessions with them and working with artists that were isolated in the community. And then I did a master's in art, health and well-being after doing a foundation in art therapy. So the place of art in people's health and well-being is really important to me and it's a real passion of mine. So so an, is it an, an, a new concept for you then to, because it feels like you were doing this because it was a, a passion project and you, you were really interested in how people were expressing themselves uh, through disability, through mental illness. But then, then you've also been able to bring these artists into like an art market arena. Yeah, I think... I mean, what I say on my website as well is that I'm a real champion for these artists and I really want to give them a voice and platform their work. And I think because Mm -hmm. so many of them are unable to do that themselves, I really want to be that person to kind of put them out there. And I think because my background is working with disabled people, I do that in a really nurturing and sensitive way. But ultimately, I want the artist's voice to be heard and I want it in their own words coming through so that people are really listening to to them and what they have to say with their work. That's actually something that I always really loved about the idea of being a gallerist before I was one, was this idea that you can kind of be an intermediary, you know, between like a museum or a collector and the artist. And somehow you can take the pressure off the artist because in a way they just want to be making art. And I, yeah. one of the reasons we really wanted to talk to you was just because the passion that you have for, you know, facilitating and helping and um, promoting artists' work that we wouldn't necessarily have heard of, um, you know, in a kind of mainstream yeah. con- context. Like a lot of the artists you you show and promote aren't necessarily household names, but, yeah. you know, they, they definitely deserve to be because they're incredible. Yeah, um, and I think it's really important what you said about being that intermediary because mm-hmm. I used to work for a, a national charity that supports kind of artists outside of the mainstream and I was that person in between them and sort of the dealers or the buyers because so many dealers in this field um I won't name any names but um <laughs> they're out there to kind of uh, exploit the artist and just be like oh I'll give you 10 pound for that work and I'll put yeah. it into my museum show and for an artist that doesn't really understand things and is quite vulnerable they get quite excited about that but really yeah. that work is worth so much more than 10 pounds yes. and I think that's why I really wanted to become this driving force to be that person that stops this work being exploited and stop these these people being exploited and to really nurture them and you know mm. take care of them and take care of the ethics of this kind of field have, have, have you called anyone out in the past and have you recognized that this oh, was yes. happening and you <laughs> really yes yes so what does that involve it happens I mean, how do you all go the about time does it... well a lot of the time people go behind the back of like a studio or something that might be um supporting an artist and go directly to the artist and then you know the artist gets excited about it and gives away their work for free or you know accepts that 10 pound for something that's taken them three years of their life 
And then afterwards, when, you know, the studios heard about it, it's it's horrendous because then they feel really guilty that they've done it, but they didn't know anything else because to them Uh, it felt like the right thing to do at the time. So it happens all the time. God. Well, thank God you're there (laughs) stepping in, (laughs) Jen. That's that's good you're there. Yeah. Well, we want to go over... um, there's a few things. Well, we want to cover a lot actually today because I feel like there's so many artists that people may have heard uh, mm-hmm. on the periphery or, or that they don't know about. But there's so mm-hmm. much exciting art and the whole outsider artist movement. But yeah. I just want to start off with the term outsider art because I've been yes. reading a lot of the blogs on your website, which everybody listening, you have to go to Jennifer Lauren Gallery website, Jennifer Lauren Gallery website. And Jen talks, does a, a talk to the collectors and talks to artists and you ask the same questions like we ask the same questions and you actually do quotes at one point, which I appreciate. Thank you very much. But you, um, (laughs) you ask, you, you ask the term, well, how people feel about the term outsider art, because Mm. it's a problematic term for many people and it is an umbrella for a lot, but Mm -hmm. I just wanted to break down what that actually means. So people listening can understand what outsider and what self-taught and folk art really mean. Yeah. I mean, Uh, I've done a lot of reading around this subject, obviously, and I do ask all the collectors of this art what they think of the term. But I think if we go back to where it came from, so outsider art was coined in 1972 by a guy called Roger Cardinal. And he came up with this term as the to be the exact English equivalent of art brew, which was coined by a guy called Jean de Buffet. Uh, in the 1940s Mm -hmm. and the art brew itself what that was said to mean was artwork executed by people who were untouched by artistic culture so that they create from their own depths and not from current trends or academic rules Mm -hmm. so they're creating for themselves and not to please other people or to gain any public public recognition or anything So they didn't actually see themselves as artists, these people that were really true to this label, because lots of them lived in institutions or were completely, you know, living in their own little bubble. Whereas nowadays, it's kind of become this catch-all term, an umbrella term, meaning anyone who creates outside of the mainstream who might be untrained or with a disability or might be socially Mm -hmm. excluded, they all just kind of get chucked under this term now. So it doesn't really mean what it was set out to mean in the first place. Right, right. But it's still used for things like the outsider art fair and and all of that. And I think one of the the, um, collectors, Randall, put it quite nicely. And he said, you know, you don't always go to a hardware store and buy hardware there. You can buy anywhere. So you don't have to go to the outsider art fair just to buy outsider art. You might be selling other things within that fair that aren't necessarily, you know, labelled outsider art. Mm. Right, right. So there's outsider art and then the self-taught art, which is basically you know art produced by people that are just existing on the margins of art history and aren't taught through art school and then a lot of American people use folk art and folk art dates back to old traditions so it's things that might have been passed down over the years so it might be basket weaving or mm-hmm. stone carving or that sort of thing oh yeah okay we're working with wood and things like that yeah wood like carving a, like a family and... trade type thing right, like right, a family right. trade kind of thing yeah Right. So why why do they why is um outsider art the term for art brew? Why has art brew not remained as a constant? Well, it was when Roger wrote this book in 1972, he wanted to call it art brew because his definition 
you know, all his his way of thinking about this art is the same as Dubuffet. But his publisher said, you know, you can't call it that because in English it translates as brutal art and we can't put a oh. book out there called brutal art. So you yeah. need to think of something else. So he banded around a few different names and outsider art is the one that stuck. Amazing. Right, and he's right, actually right. the person that came up with that term then. I didn't he know came that. up with that term and uh, unfortunately he's passed away now. But before he passed away, he even he was saying, you know, this term no longer means what I wanted it to mean. But there's been so many new terms that have kind of been flying around. And one mm-hmm. that came out in the last couple of years was Outliers, which was the name of a show in America. But that doesn't seem to have really st- stuck at what, all. What, what, do you, what would you say would be a, a, a more include? Because outside, as a term, sounds like outside, so you're not included, not inclusive. Well, that's why people if, don't like it because yeah, right. people, it makes people feel like they're on the outside. People feel like they're on the outside of society anyway. And you're saying they're kind yeah. of outsiders Mm. and also with the term outsider art it's like you're grouping the people rather than the art whereas with the term art brew you're describing the art and not the artist so it just feels very wrong that we're labeling people that way and with the artists on my website I would never describe any of them as outsider artists unless they directly said to me I want you to call me an outsider artist so I work with a lot of artists in Japan that are working yeah. out of studios. And in Japan, it's seen as a really great thing to be classed as an outsider artist. And so they want to be known as outsider artists because it kind of puts them up on a shelf that they really like to be this kind of privileged position as an outsider rather than just being seen as a disabled artist. Interesting. Wow. Actually, some of some of the artists that you work from Japan are the ones that Russ and I sort of first discovered, you know, mm-hmm. maybe yeah. like four months ago. I think at the beginning of this year, we started talking mm-hmm. about yeah. them a bit. And um, can you speak a bit about the, the people you've been working with recently? Because like we, yeah. we really love um, Shinichi Sawada. Sawada, yeah. yeah. And we amazing, came to his yeah. work through Cause Cause yes. Cause 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 his work, and, and also, then we posted about... a picture and then... Go on, no, me, me and Jen, you, you messaged us, Jen, and then you were like, that's Shinichi Sawada. And I was like, wow. And then we started a conversation. So yeah. And Cause was actually saying, you're amazing. And he said, you've been to the studio. You sat on that couch. Exactly, where sat. I've sat on that couch. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a minor, the I'm most minor celebrity. <laughs> but he's a massive champion cause of, of uh, like, he's outsider a massive art champion and self He is, and it's really wonderful to see that. And the fact that he posts it for his audiences, you know, he's a contemporary yeah. artist and he's posting it for his audiences to see this work. And actually lots of yeah. contemporary artists collect Sawada's work now. His work's kind of all over the world in museums and people's personal collections. And I think he, he came into the fore because his work was included in the Venice Biennale in 2013 mm. in the Encyclopedic Palace. And that's when, you know, the art world suddenly woke up to this uh, autistic Japanese artist that creates these incredible ceramic sculptures of yeah. these weird mythical kind of animal creature type forms. And he attends a studio in Japan for people with disabilities three or four times a week. And in the morning, he bakes bread and he's been taught how to make bread because in Japan, to get your money from the government for having a disability, you have to have some sort of core skill that you do. So some people pack boxes, but he bakes bread and other people in his studio go and sell it in the local community in the afternoon. But in the afternoons, he gets taken up in a car into the mountains, into this hut that was built for him back in early 2000s. And it's literally a shack in the middle of a 
and in the middle of the mountains surrounded by rice fields and it's got no doors or anything to it it's all completely open down the side so he can only go in there when it's kind of warmer weather because it gets quite cold and he yeah. sits in there in near silence because he's almost non-verbal and he just sits and makes these creatures uh, silently sometimes with the radio on and they take him around four days to make and then they're left to dry out for six months in this shack and the guy that works with him, he's built two wood-fired kilns there, and one goes up to 1,200 degrees and one to 800 degrees. And the 800 degrees one is the one that uh, makes his work black. So that one's not often used for swada. But the other one that goes to 1,200 degrees, his work goes in there for three days and three nights. So this little old man stays awake for three days and three nights feeding wood mm. into this kiln to keep it at that temperature. And then it takes a week to cool down. And because he's a completely self-taught artist, you know, he, he doesn't attach things properly. So some of them explode in the kiln, some of them, you know, the leg falls off or something. Mm. And, you know, he makes so many of them. I don't think he fully understands, you know, when one breaks, he doesn't seem that bothered about it. Whereas the studio are like, oh, another one's broken. Mm -hmm. Whereas he's just quite happily making the next one. And, you know, he's fine and content to continue with what he's doing. And does anyone know where these these creatures come from? Because a lot a lot of the artists they they create these pieces, but no one can track how they've conceived these ideas because they're not looking at other artists. They're not looking at art no. history. They're not looking at movements. These things no. are, are coming from their inside their insular minds where they're not connecting yeah. with anyone. Completely. And that's what's so fascinating. So, what did, but you you have no idea where he's conceived. No these idea, and and because he's you know almost nonverbal, he doesn't obviously talk about them. The guy that works with him every day says, you know, I never get any information from him because, you know, he's not really able to speak. But you can go around this little hut with him, and he might point to something and say it's a sea creature. Or he'll say something is something else. And he has, when he was first making them, he had like 15 different motifs of like animal creature type things that he'd make over and over again. And since another artist joined his studio three years ago, his work's kind of changed more uh, over the last three years. And I think he's been influenced by this guy called Contony, who has a more... Um, he focuses more on the faces of these creatures that Contony makes. So Sawada used to cover his work in these tiny little thorns, and he was known as this guy that did these ceramics covered spikes, in tiny spikes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, And his newer work is no longer covered in these spikes. It's kind of more focused on like faces of these creatures. It's softer edged, and then isn't it? softer yeah. lines on them instead and less spikes. So they're taking it's a completely so interesting, different look. isn't it? Like the the kind of power of the influence, you know, mm -hmm. of that new artist joining the studio, but yeah, also um, before that, just this idea of imagination, really, and the kind of mm -hmm. creative freedom that I think probably we all have as human mm -hmm. beings, you know, the potential to imagine mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe it's stuff from our past, even before we were even alive or something. Maybe mm -hmm. it's like within us somehow. Well, they're know, unedited. I mean, if you're if you're working as an artist in the art world, you I guess you edit yourself when you look at art history, but if you're not 
not doing any of that, then what you're creating is so authentic and mm-hmm. honest and raw. And that's what's mm-hmm. so exciting about these mm-hmm. artists mm-hmm. and the fact that they now have a platform and they're seen as this with this regard of kind of mm-hmm. a bit of magic about them. Do you feel that with from the collectors and curators and audiences? Oh, completely, yeah. And it's yeah. just the fact that he has no books or anything in this little hut. He's literally in the middle of nowhere. So it is literally coming from inside him. And you could just sit and watch wow. him work. And it's so peaceful watching him, you know, create these pieces. Have I you went met to him see a few him. times then? I've only met him once. I went a couple of years ago to Japan and spent yeah. the day with him in the studio. I mean, obviously, he didn't really talk to me. He said hello. <laughs> yeah. But I just yeah. sat and watched him work and looked around this little hut and then went back to the studio where uh, the rest of the people were. And it was, it's just a really, it was, re- it just felt really uh, peaceful watching him and the great thing with his him is although he's you know seen as this great outsider artist so to speak uh his work is now in a museum in germany which is a contemporary sculpture museum and they've just made a book about him and this professor has written an article about him in this book you know describing him as this contemporary artist and i think for the artists that i work with i really love the fact that they're being seen now as contemporary artists and being accepted more into the mainstream for their work yeah yeah and how do you manage like as his gallerist now how like what what does money mean to him and what what is his sort of uh family background uh, is 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 he from a, a wealthy family or is is the money that because he's quite expensive now the money that he makes on these work does is he aware of that and does that go back into the family or the local community or uh i don't think he's aware of it you know given the nature of his disability and the fact that you know he doesn't really uh write anything and you know he doesn't really speak so i don't think he's fully aware of you know the popularity of his work but his studio certainly you know you walk into his studio and it's just a wall of his artwork <laughs> as the thing that you walk in so they're a really big wow. champion of his work and really proud of you know where he is in the world now but Sawada never really travels to any of the exhibitions that he does and doesn't really travel on a plane or anything. So he doesn't fully, fully understand it, but his family are really proud of him. And so his family, you know, are the ones that receive the money and then they support him through that. But he would never not want to go to the studio. So even if he had, you know, loads and loads of money, the fact is that he loves going there almost every day to create these works. It's like a real drive for him to do it. It's amazing. It's amazing. Actually... Um, going back to New York, you know the Outsider Art Fair this year, didn't they have an mm-hmm. exhibition that was um, bringing together like collectors, kind of well-known contemporary artists? It was, contemporary artists. The mainstream art world, yeah. yeah. Because it was yeah. fascinating to see the kind of names, because I know someone like Cause has joined the American Museum of Folk Art now on the board, mm-hmm. so yeah. he's really sort of committing on that level as yeah. well. But the list of names was like really impressive. It was kind of like Cindy Sherman, Maurizio <laughs> Catalan, Chris Martin, Kiki I Smith, know. Nicole Eisenman, Julian Schnabel, yeah. you, you know, Laurie Simmons. It goes on and on and on. Mm-hmm. And I found it so interesting the way that they're all kind of successful artists in the mainstream mm-hmm. kind of art world in a way. But how important, you know, this kind of work by self-taught and overlooked artists is to Inspires them. Inspires them. Yeah, yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Or like Polly Apfelbloom's a great example as well. Who well, I guess you mean look at folk art or tribal art through the mm-hmm. ages. Tribal art inspired a whole cubist movement. Yeah, yeah, look yeah, at Picasso. Crazy. I mean, that, yeah. was, that was self-taught artisans crafting. That mm-hmm. in itself could be yeah. classed as self-taught, right? And even if you watched Grayson Perry's art programme recently on the television, mm-hmm. he talked about outsider art on that and how much it's inspired and influenced him. So yeah, definitely. mainstream people are talking a lot more about this work now. 
Yeah, Great. Really well, let's talk about some of the the uh, big names that people mm-hmm. might have heard of. Um, for me, I would say the biggest names are Henry Darger, who mm-hmm. I first saw his work, and I think you saw it as well, Robert, the Museum of Everything in Primrose yeah, Hill in 2009. Yeah. And I remember well, seeing these panels. <laughs> very disturbing. <laughs> yeah. These images. He, he was an yeah. untrained, uh, undiscovered Mm-hmm. Um, guy who was a janitor who was mm-hmm. a bit of a hermit and he created mm-hmm. these worlds and then when on his death they were all discovered mm-hmm. and now he's like he's up there as like the granddaddy of outsider art right well his work you know sold at christie's in new york for nearly seven hundred and fifty thousand us dollars which for an outsider artist is a lot of money, probably, I don't know if it's the, it could be the most, but it, you know, one of his works has never sold for that much money before. So it's highly sought after work now that comes with a hefty price tag on it. But yeah. he was this, you know, shy, reclusive man in Chicago who cheap, who rented this really cheap room and then worked in a hospital as a porter and created this massive body of work behind closed doors that was found just before he passed away. And he'd written this massive uh, 15-volume epic story, which was known as the story of the Vivian girls called The Realms of the Unreal. And it featured lots of young girls. But I think what you're saying is disturbing about them is lots of the young girls often had uh, men's genitalia on them and were often being attacked or abused. Uh, And he often drew himself into the pictures as someone that was trying to protect the children. Mm. so there was there's lots of stories about his life that are floating around and and whether or not these you know bad things happened to him throughout his life and whether there's all these like horrible things that you read that about was him, his the therapy f- of creating yeah. these stories for, for his own sort of exorcism of whatever yeah. happened to him yeah but we don't know whether these are true or not these are just things that are banded right. about but he used to collect magazines and newspapers and then he'd trace the images of like girls or people out of those and then use those tracings to do his pictures. And they were sort oh, of like right. um, 10 Shirley metres Temple. long, double-sided yeah. in watercolour. Mm. Huge, huge, like huge, huge pieces, body of work really, that yeah. was just... Yeah. So who And they who were gets all the like hand-bound who... down the side as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's incredible. But who likes to say his auction prices, like... Go for that. Who who now has his estate? He's who looks got an estate that? now. All oh, right. Wow. <laughs> wow. Which would well, be a lovely thing to going. have. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So he's he's a, he's a big one. Grandma Moses. Now is she Grandma in there Moses. as some? I wouldn't say she's as well known uh, right. as them, but she. Yeah, I'd say less people know about Grandma Moses. Actually, what do you know about Grandma Moses? Well, she make they, they made me think of like Lowry esque uh, images uh, of, of like quite um, naive um, people, but from her community. Yeah, they're kind of like lands. They're kind of landscape, but then you see all the characters dotted around, and there's no sort of hierarchy with um, sizing or or there's no sort of perspective on it. Everyone's just sort of the same, whether they're in the back of the field or the, or yeah. the front by the house or whatever. But she, I, mean, I, I thought say... that she was quite. A, well, I wouldn't say she's as well known as some, but she she would be classed right. as a folk artist as opposed to right. an outsider artist. So there were quite mm-hmm. naive paintings that she did of like, you know, local rural life. 
potentially based from where she was living. And there's quite a few artists that kind of do that kind of style of painting. It's almost like European naive painters would fall under the same kind of bracket as Grandma Moses, I guess. Mm. Okay. Um, Bill Trailer, who is one that's really (laughs) uh, blown up as well. He's uh, he's been incredible influence for so many contemporary artists now his style and he didn't start making uh, work until he's in his 80s right what's the story behind him well funnily enough there was a guardian article about bill trailer last week in england saying that there's so many forged works in his <gasps> style now which oh, is really? terrible so there's um this guy that's having to go around and trying to verify them all. And in this Guardian oh. article, there was an an example of a forged version of a Bill Trailer painting. But yeah, Bill Trailer was... Could, uh, you, have, could you have told the difference, Jen? Could, if you saw I that... I think when I looked at this one online, I mean, had I seen it and no one told me, no. But because I was reading this yeah. article and then I looked at yeah. it, I was You're like, like oh, yeah, I can yeah, totally there we go. see <laughs> that it's not <laughs> Of course. It's a, bit, it's, a bit, it's a bit of a help, isn't it, when they say this is a forge? You're like, yeah, I think I it was that. the dog. It was the dog. I was like, that doesn't look like a Bill Trailer dog. So I think that was a bit of a giveaway. But if you didn't know much about Bill Trailer, someone would be buying that work for a hell of a lot of money. And that person that painted it would be laughing. But um, Bill Trailer, so yeah, he's one of the biggest uh, known outsiders. So he was born into slavery um, back in 1853, and he died when he was in his 90s. But he didn't actually start creating until he was 84, and he used to work on a plantation until he was 84 in Alabama and then moved to Montgomery and uh, some, for some reason decided to uh, start painting. And he used to live sometimes on the streets and sometimes uh, in a storage room and a little local shop. And then he sat out all day in the African-American community in Montgomery and just sat and drew. And the main body of work that survives is from a four-year period of his life, from 1939. So there was 1,500 drawings. And now they're being shown, like David Zwimmer in New York (laughs) just had an exhibition of them, which is mind-blowing, really. Yes. Um, I mean, it was a beautiful exhibition. I I actually just saw a series of his work here in Margate at the Turner Contemporary because there's an exhibition which will reopen on the 22nd of July um, called We Will Walk. And that's Mm -hmm. actually all that story that you just told. I I learned about in February time when the show opened. But yeah, it's really great to, to see it. So there is a chance to actually see his work here in the UK at the moment. Yeah, which is a first, actually. It's the first exhibition of its kind in the UK. So I was due to come down to Margate to see it, but obviously (laughs) lockdown stopped me seeing it. You have to come in July or... um, It's on until September. I think they're extending it till the 6th of September. So Yeah, I read that online. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really... I can meet you as well, take you around. It's really amazing. Yeah, that'd be great. But like Bill Trailer's in that, Hawkins Bolden, Lonnie Holly, Mary Smith. Lonnie Holly, yeah. So that would be, a you know, if you're in the UK and you want to see this work, I would recommend that. But yeah, Bill Trailer. So he was creating these works on the street. And then this guy called Charles Shannon came across his work and loved it. So bought a few of them and then wanted to kind of promote him. So when Bill Trailer was alive, he saw his work exhibited twice. And then Charles Shannon oh, didn't great. show it again until the 80s. So it was kind of kept until the sort of 70s and 80s, until when back in New York, Charles Shannon did a show of it. 
<laughs> when, the funny thing is that when Bill Trailer was alive, they, you know, they sold for like a dime or a quarter, mm-hmm. and now they sell for 500000 <laughs> So I do wonder how he would feel if they were selling for so much money today in comparison to, Do you have kids and family and stuff? I'm not totally sure, actually, so I couldn't couldn't give you the answer on that, but they obviously haven't profited from it, (laughs) which is uh, a shame. So this is what you're talking about, people taking advantage, people getting in there and sort of building these people up but taking it all for themselves. I mean, at the time, I mean, I guess a dime or a quarter was maybe seen as a good thing back in, you know, the 40s. I don't know. Mm, But, you know, now they sell for so much money. But I think what I liked about Charles Shannon is on the back of Bill Trailer's work, if Bill Trailer told him something in particular about that work, like, you know, who might be in the picture or what it was a scene on, Charles would write in uh, Bill Trailer's dialect what was in that picture. And so some of the pieces today have got that text on the back of them, which I think is a really lovely kind of remembrance of the work because he didn't title any of the work so it kind of reminds people what was in it and then I guess there was this when I interview all these collectors they all keep talking about this one show in America so I had to buy this catalogue online which cost me a small fortune (laughs) because it's completely out (laughs) of print the folk art show right the The folk folk art so the black folk art show in America which was in 1982 yeah yeah people rave about this show because it was the first time african-american work had been brought together uh as a whole in America and I I think it was quite strange because I read something in the catalogue saying people are going to be really disturbed by this exhibition because you will have never seen any art like this in your life and Bill Trailer had 36 works in that show. And so that was one of the things that kind of put him out there onto this platform alongside, I think it was like maybe 20 other artists in this show. So it sounded like an amazing show from reading the catalogue and from listening to Is the catalogue good? It is good. And it's got some amazing mm. artists in it, like Bill Trailer, like William Edmondson. Like Yes, let's talk about amazing. William Edmondson. Yes, yes. Edmondson. let's talk about William Edmondson. Yes. Love. <laughs> Love, love the work. Yes. So he was uh, a labourer and a farmhand, and he used to carve limestone. Again, he's from the same sort of era as Bill Trailer, so born in the 1870s, and carved these beautiful limestone sculptures. But he's someone that he was kind of, you know, walking around one day and said that he saw a tombstone appear in the sky then the voice of God commanding him that he had to carve. And so from that day onwards, he started to carve things. And he carved a lot of angels and a lot of religious symbolism. And Mm -hmm. when you go to the Museum of Modern Art in New York at the moment, one of his sculptures is on display there in a room that's dedicated to self-taught art alongside Bill Trader's work. Wow. Which is amazing because, they, I mean, you know. But they're beautiful. They are absolutely beautiful. They are beautiful, sculptures. yeah. They're very simple carvings. They're not like delicately done. It's quite an obvious, simple shape of like an angel, but it's very beautiful to look at. Yes. Definitely. Um, one more, Madge Gill. Madge, Madge Gill, Gill seems to be well, like the grand, grandmother of it all. Well, Madge Gill is the most famous outsider artist in the UK. <laughs> so she is, yeah. uh, you know, for us, she's a major person to be focusing on. And she did right. last year have, a, was it last year? I can't remember now. A big show at Walthamstow uh, in the art gallery there, in the William Morris Art Gallery had a show dedicated yeah. to her work, which was just 
incredible to see so much of her work brought together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But she was uh, someone that lived in London and she believed that she was guided by a spirit called Mine Interest. And a series of sad events in her life, like some of her children dying very young, compelled her to start wanting to do seances and to reach out to people. And then obviously this spirit guide came about and she was compelled to produce and then just didn't stop until, you know, she passed away. And she was a very, very prolific artist, like would work at night time by candlelight, drawing on postcards over and over again, and also worked on massive rolls of calico that were sort of 35 foot long rolls of calico. And her son made this little device that he attached the calico into so she could only see a small bit of it at once. And then she'd roll it up and roll the next bit out. And she wouldn't ever see the thing whole until it was like out in her garden for her to see. And yet it flowed all the way along, like a really beautiful wow. drawing. Mm. And it all, all of her work almost always featured women's faces with a hat on. But no one ever knows who this person was, if it was the same person over and over again, if it was her, if it was her children, her nobody knows. Like, yeah, yeah it's, it's a complete mystery. But this kind of face... But she did this under the in. trance, right? Oh, completely. She did this in like a trance-like state, yeah. Yeah, because when her work was actually exhibited, um, uh, it was then known as the East End Academy, which is now the Whitechapel. So when she was alive, she used to be part of their annual show, and often her long calico pieces were shown. But Mm. she said she could never sell them because they weren't hers to sell. They belonged to someone else, meaning they belonged to her spirit. And people actually used the word visionary for her. And I think it's such a perfect description because it really is visionary. You know, it's like she sort of saw these visions in a way. And there's an amazing photograph um, linked to the William Morris Gallery show that we'll post on our Instagram of her with one of these giant, um, Mm. you know, calico artworks. So incredible. I mean, she's classed as media mystic as well. There's right. a whole big movement of the the mediumistic movement is very big movement coming through that's kind of being linked to outsider at the moment. So she kind of falls underneath that. But this is when they feel like they're making work through a through a higher being. Yeah, she, kind of I think she described it them. as a spirit a spirit guide, didn't she? She guide, described yeah. it as a spirit guide. Yeah. Yeah. Would it, would, would mediumistic mediumistic would that ever involve um, schizophrenia artists or anyone like that that are hearing voices and creating work as someone else or? Well, it includes people like uh, Georgiana Houghton would be described mm. as that. She had a show at the Courthold, I think, a few years ago. Right. It's people that are being guided by other people, I guess, that would fall under that. But it's it's becoming very popular at the moment. It's a very like hot topic. <laughs> And okay, so sort of well, that's good. At, at the Outsider Art Fair in Paris last year, there was lots of uh, dealers that had medi- mediumistic art on their stands that they were selling. So it's kind of like, you know, the hot thing to buy at the moment. Well, so that's an insider-outsider tip, isn't it? You've just given us, Jen. <laughs> 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 yeah. Outsider-insider tip. <laughs> so well, let's talk about some of the artists that you have on your rosters. We talked about uh, Shinichi Sawada, the... Uh, mm-hmm guy from japan and now mm-hmm. there's an amazing artist who's who i look at his work and the thought of making it myself gives me a migraine pradeep kumar <laughs> that if he i if i had to co- <laughs> if i had to co- if i had to concentrate like he concentrates making these things i would have a migraine his skill <laughs> let's talk well let's talk about him 
He's so meticulous. It kind of takes it to a whole other level. Yes. So yes. meticulous. And they're so delicate in the, in the flesh. Like when he carves the little legs onto the matchstick of the birds, they're so mm. thin. Like I almost don't want to pick it up because I feel like it's just going <laughs> to snap off. And wow. he's just sent me, a, well, his father's just sent me some pictures of some new ones he's done. So he carves toothpicks and, and matchsticks and then he carves the very tip of them into it's normally uh, people or birds and animals. And his father's just sent me two of yo- people in yoga positions upside down on their hands. Which I love. <laughs> <laughs> so Out of a good. toothpick. Oh my <laughs> Out God. Out of a toothpick. Like, and it, it's literally like the bit that he actually carves is like a centimeter long. And the detail in them, when he paints them afterwards, like with a little necklace or like a little chain around their waist or buttons down their top it's just insane how did you find him how did you discover his work his work so um raw vision often shows his work at the uh, art fairs and i saw it there and i've seen his work in lots of exhibitions about outsider art and so raw vision put me in touch with uh, what is raw vision that's a gallery isn't it uh, no raw vision is uh, the only outsider art magazine that exists in the world. So I recommend everyone should buy this magazine. It comes out four times a year and has articles about different artists in it. So Sawad has had an article about him. Pradeep's probably had an article about him. You know, lots of these big artists, Bill Trailer, they've all had articles about them written in Raw Vision magazine. So, it's so you can discover new artists magazine. in this magazine if you're looking for new talent. Uh, I don't think I could discover new artists in there. People who find new artists will want to have an article about that artist in there to kind of right. get them known wider. Right, right. But, right. I mean, for so that's me... That's the kind of go-to magazine. That's a go-to if you want to learn more about this, definitely. I'd recommend yeah. that. The way I find artists is either some people approach me or I approach studios um, if I see some artists that I like online or if I visit exhibitions or different studios around the world, I'll pop in and see the artists there, or some people recommend people to me. So there's lots of different ways that new artists would come around. And actually, you yourself are are introducing us and many other people across the world to so many different artists. And the show that you did in January, or earlier this year anyway, Mm -hmm. um, in London, Monochromatic Mm -hmm. Minds, can you talk a bit Mm -hmm. about that? Because I know you're about to start a whole Zoom series of talks um, in July. So I thought it would be interesting for people to hear about the original premise of the the show. Yeah, so through my gallery, I like to do pop-up shows. And normally they're quite small, because I have quite a limited budget. (laughs) So (laughs) I managed to get some funding from the Arts Council which was not enough to cover the exhibition, but enough to help me put it on. And I decided Mm. I only ever buy black and white artwork myself. Mm. Um, And so I I really love intricate black and white artwork. And so I wanted to put on a show of monochrome work from around the world. And it was 61 artists working in black and white that are self-taught, disabled or classed as outsider artists. And it was people working out of studios and people that just exist and are isolated in community and work by themselves. Some of them I knew, some people were suggested to me. And then I pulled together this exhibition and I held it at Candid Arts Trust in London. Mm. And it was only on for a very short time because it's so expensive to hire spaces out in London. So it was on for 10 days. Did you have um, work by the Japanese artist Haka Nagawa? I did, yes. Because I love love that artist so much. Yeah, she's 
she, she it's a she it's a she i love her um, work so much it's a she yeah she's she's quite um got quite severe mental health issues but she draws on like sort of postcard sized white paper with a black yeah. pen and draws so whatever pops into her head so i mean i've got a drawing by her of a face and it's got four eyes on the face and there's kind of snakes coming out of the eyes it's quite mm. weird wow. and sometimes they look like quite friendly little characters sometimes they look like quite disturbed characters there's one that's riding a bike waving but they're just pen and ink drawings really small you know quite detailed drawings so there was pieces like that in there and then there's pieces by um, a british artist called nick blinko who's mm. a very well-known um artist for having schizophrenia but also for being the lead singer of a, a punk band called rudimentary penai so he's got this massive cult following that follow him and he always draws all his album covers and everything and i had a magnifying glass next to his work in the exhibition because the detail in it is just ridiculous and so some people just came just to see his work because they're super fans but they'd look at one piece of his work for like an hour because there's really? so much detail so in much it. Detail. So much wow. detail. So I had people like him. And then on the flip side of that, I had someone like Donald Mitchell, who works out of Creative Growth in California, mm-hmm. that draws in these like people with a black body and just a white circular head with eyes, nose, and a mouth. And they're all stacked on top of each other. And it's a very simple, playful image, but they're just beautiful. And, oh. you know, he doesn't need to do anything else. So there's like, complete opposites in this exhibition and it was artists from all over the world hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f*** are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com. So it was one. What's Creative go- Growth? Creative Growth is an art center in California, and it's, right. I think in America, it's the one that's been going the longest working with artists with developmental disabilities. So you should Google them because they have some incredible artists there. So Judith Scott came out of there, and Judith Scott is, you know, now celebrated across the world for her fiber sculptures and had a solo show at Brooklyn Museum and was uh, wow. shown in um, the Venice Biennale. They also have Dan Miller that works out of there. He's very famous in the outsider field. But his work was shown at the Andrew Edling Gallery at Freeze in New York last year. And I think they sold out on the first day. 
And this is wow. somebody with a developmental disability. And he does these massive works of overlapped text. And again, he's someone who's quite nonverbal, but just writes words over and over again on top of each other to build up these really beautiful drawings with pen and with paint. And some of them are, you know, huge, and then some of them are quite small. And he had this beautiful display at Freeze uh, in New York last year, and they just flew out. And his work's now, you know, with lots of contemporary artists again in their homes and their collections. So cool. One of my, um, and actually, Freeze did a a whole uh, kind of installation, didn't they? Like an exhibition Mm -hmm. within the fair. That was last year, yeah. Well, that was last year, Doors of Perception, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Sawada was part of that. I was going to say, Sawada was in there, wasn't it? Which was well exciting because, you know, I got to go to Freeze in New York. (laughs) (laughs) Which was amazing. You know, in your show, in the um, monochromatic show, one of the favorite artists for me was Davoud Kuchaki. Mm-hmm. who sadly has recently passed away. But he has, you, uh, you yeah. actually said on your Instagram that he was the smiliest artist ever. He was. he was always he smiling. Really... <laughs> I, I love his work and I love him. What an amazing energy. He's always so happy. And again, someone that didn't start drawing till he was in his 60s. So, you know, later really? in life. And he's known as the pencil man. And mm. he drew these incredible creatures. But I had this one in my exhibition and it was like a large kind of mound of a creature in the middle and then these four smaller ones either side. Mm. And he said that they're all huddling around the big main one because he was protecting them and looking after them. And I was like, oh, my mm. God, that description is so nice. Oh. And it's in, and no, that was a huge drawing. It was sort of A1 size. And then he goes yeah. down to sort of A4 size. And again, he's worked all over the world in in many people's collections. And, you Mm. know, lots of the time they were quite smiley. These, these, you know, they might have looked a bit scary, but they often have a smile on their face. So you kind of (laughs) like... Is it scary? Should I be happy? I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, is that a sinister smile? <laughs> yeah. Or is that a smile? Smile, yeah. But if you, if you see photos about... of him, then, you know, you just yeah. think, oh, I must be happy. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll post we... some of him because I, I love him. Yeah. You were talking about non-verbal artists. There is an artist mm-hmm. actually who's making a big um, uh, splash at the moment who is mm-hmm. a contemporary artist called Marlon Mullen, who mm-hmm. was in the Whitney yeah. Biennial mm-hmm. and he's completely mm-hmm. seen as the mainstream and well, his work yeah. is incredible can we talk about him for a bit do you know a lot about his work yeah I really I really like his work actually so I I only found out about it a couple of years ago when I saw it at um in the New York gallery called JTT and he's also represented by Adams Adams and Ullman in Oregon but he's um a black artist who's yeah pretty much non-verbal and autistic and he's in his mid-50s and he works out of somewhere like Creative Growth but it's called Nyad in California which is Mm -hmm. like a sister there's three in California that are all linked so that one's linked in and he does these massive they're quite often massive (laughs) massive paintings with really uh, simplified imagery on them so he takes photographic images from uh, magazines from lifestyle magazines contemporary art magazines or the front covers of them and then he appropriates it and abstracts it in his mind into this reduced version of shapes and lettering and stuff and does this completely unique version of that kind of cover or image that he's using so like you said he was in the Whitney Biennial last year and also uh, the San Francisco MoMA gave him an award last year and for yes, both of right, those yeah. occasions he's the first disabled artist working out of a studio that's ever been included in that biennial or been given that award by MoMA which is a mm. massive turning point 
for disabled artists being accepted into the contemporary art world more. And it's just, he's he's on this like real path. Oh, he's so long long overdue, but he's on this massive path at the moment of like amazing things coming his way. But he's quite, I think he is aware though, isn't he? He is aware because I think think he was at the biennial and stuff. Yeah, Yeah. and he had a jacket on that said Whitney Biennial on the back of it, which was amazing. But he goes to visit all these things. And although, you know, he might not be there to speak or anything, he's taking in the atmosphere and people are coming up to him and, you know, telling him how incredible his work Mm. is. So, yeah, he, he's someone I think understands what's going on we were talking to um catherine bradford the other day and she um she was saying that now you know i think the last kind of five years you know maybe decade but i think really the last five years people are just so much more interested in kind of new ways of seeing the world and also Mm -hmm. like like marginalized voices and people that Mm -hmm. haven't had platforms on so many levels whether it be Mm -hmm. you know people that are outside the mainstream yeah Yeah. or Mm -hmm. people of color or queer voices or all these different Mm -hmm. voices and i think it's so so important that that Mm -hmm. you know that includes you know disabled artists or or self-taught you know all all this kind of other field as well I agree, but I think that our country is so far behind everywhere Mm. else. Like, in America, this work is celebrated, you know, it's talked about by art critics all the time. Like, the New York Times writes about these artists Mm -hmm. all the time and praises them for, you know, their incredible work. You've got MoMA that's got a room dedicated to them and other pieces dotted around their collection. And then you look at England and you think, (laughs) what the hell's going on here when you see things written about these exhibitions it's always like come and meet the misfits and like really negative articles about these artists which is not really encouraging people to go and see it it's not said that that's not a real quote is it adrian searle adrian searle the headline was meet the misfits and then he said oh god God, i wish i could remember what it said now but um Oh, it said that he said oh. that the exhibition left him disturbed, and I just thought you're not really encouraging people to go and see these exhibitions. That was a show that was at the Whitechapel um, a few years ago. Yeah, that was 2006, wasn't it? Yeah, but you just God. think, and then and then you look at what people like Roberta Smith and Jerry Saltz write in America, yes, and they're my like God. You know, praising this work, yep. and yep. our art yep. critics are like destroying it. And I think because there's so few exhibitions of this work it kind of pops up so you know you had the 2006 show in 2013 you had the alternative guide to the universe at the haywood which again was panned in the press you had a japanese outsider art show at the welcome which got quite a lot of good press actually and then you know you've got this exhibition at the turner contemporary now and then a few you know higgledy piggledy things dotted around but you don't really have Mm. anything that's there all the time for people to see like the tape doesn't have you know specific pieces of this work that they have out for people to kind of gain more understanding of outside art. Why do you think that is here? Do you you think that's because the gallery system in the States, like you had big galleries, like Phyllis Kind was uh, a hero for promoting Mm -hmm. outsider art, folk art, self-taught artists. You seem to be like a hero in the UK, Jen. You're like, you're... (laughs) You're going to get awards. You need like services, services to the arts, totally, MBE, CBE, totally. all of them, all the letters. But who, I mean, do you think it's because I, there isn't that? 
I think because we don't, ha- yeah, we don't have it in this country. We don't, and in lots of the other places, like in Paris, you've got the House Saint Pierre, which is a museum pretty much dedicated to showcasing outsider and self-taught art. In Lausanne, in Switzerland, is where Jean de Buffet's collection is housed. In America, I mean, in New York alone, you've got so many individual galleries like Andrew Edlin, Scott from Shrine. Uh, Cave in Morris, they're all showcasing this kind of work alongside yeah. bigger places like the American Folk Art Museum. And then you come mm. to England and, you know, we've got the Gallery of Everything in London, um, mm. which showcases this work but hasn't been there that long. But really, we don't have a place where you can see this work all the time and appreciate it and for people to understand it more, to then, you know, want to see more of it. So when so I did true. my show... Do we have the studios? So true. Do we have studios, though? We do have studios, yeah. But again, right. I'd say the studios in America, like Creative Growth and uh, Land Gallery in New York, I mean... They seem, because they've been going a long time, but they seem to do a lot of high-profile art fairs as well, or things like the Outsider Art Fair. Mm-hmm. But, like, Creative Growth takes part in, like, Art Paris, and they do uh, an art fair in L.A. Is it the Felix Art Fair, maybe? Something mm-hmm. with F, I can't remember. But they, they seem to have more of a platform, whereas our studios don't seem to have that same platform and, again, don't seem to have that same recognition that studios in other countries seem to have. So it just, it makes me really sad that this country just doesn't have this, like, amazing following because there's so many amazing artists that work out of this country and they just seem to get lost unless, you know, I put on a pop-up exhibition (laughs) and I can't do that all the time because, you know, I can't afford to do that all the time. But I just love for people to see it. In this field. Yeah, completely on my own. So what what so is I, your what do you think should happen now then? What can we do? What is what what needs to be in place? What is the infrastructure to get this more exposure and to have it more respect and Well, I'd I'd like to see and I'd like to make it happen, a museum that showcases this kind of work and has yeah, like a permanent right. display, you know, potentially rotating collection collection and then and then brings in touring shows so if you look at somewhere like Gugging which is in Vienna in Austria Gugging Mm -hmm, is where the House of Artists is and the House of Artists was set up by um, Dr Leo Navratil and he had patients on his ward and he would encourage them to draw and then it was an all-male ward and then he pulled people off that that he saw had really great potential and put them all together in the house of artists where they could create and be looked after for you know their mental health needs and now next to that next to this beautiful house of artists where they've all painted all over the outsides of it and everything is the mu- the Guggen Museum and the Guggen Gallery so the museum is upstairs and it has two shows a year of really high profile shows about outsider art or one artist in particular from the outsider art mm-hmm. field or shows the mm-hmm. Prinzhorn collection. And then downstairs is a studio that the artists who live in the house can come over and use whenever they want. And then there's the Gallery Gugging, which is run by a lady called Nina. And they do more like six shows a year. And they're showing work out of that studio and putting it together with other people like Miss Ladies that you said you liked from Cuba. Yeah, I've just acquired a work, Miss Ladies, Castilla Pedrosa, who's amazing. Yeah, she's got some work there alongside Oswald Tshirtner at the moment in the gallery downstairs. So they're kind of pairing the two against each other. So they have artists from the House of Artists alongside artists from out in the world. 
in the wow. field as well. So we, I feel like we need that, but here. <laughs> and I'd like yeah, to make yeah, that, that happen <laughs> one day. <laughs> but it's true, isn't it? Because like one of the only times I really remember seeing a kind of complete exhibition, well, actually, apart from We Will Walk as well, because that has a, mm-hmm. a lot of... It looks of, amazing, um, yeah. Yeah, but it was, was Museum of Everything when it used everything to be yeah. in, um, in Chalk Farm. Yeah. Yeah, like but that was only pop Hill. up. That was just a pop up again. Yeah. That was never exactly. Going but it was to also stay. it was also financed by a private individual again. It's not oh, like completely. Yeah. Yeah, and the thing is, the the audience for this is huge. You know, for, mm-hmm. for, for art generally. So, like, mm-hmm. if if someone helps to actually, I don't know, create a wing in a leading museum, mm-hmm. or which mm-hmm. should really happen as well, I think. You know, as well. well that's happened. Yeah, 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 totally. In Lamb, Lamb and Lille has got an outside art wing. Exactly. In it. But like mm. the, the, there will be crowds of people there because people are interested. Do you know what I mean? And there's I a, a fascination think, I don't know with the brain there will as well. Be. <laughs> really? But isn't it I just think, about well, education, though? Isn't it about? Oh, like, it's definitely about education. Like this whole yeah. field just seems to be completely written out of art history, and I'd That's love I mean. it if art schools would start talking about the outsider yeah. art movement and the self-taught and folk art and educate people when they're at art school because it's never talked about and so people just you know like me I happened across it in a book in the library and that's how I found out about it like no one at art school ever talks about it and actually it's interesting that a lot of the champions of um you know self-taught work has been other artists artists, because they've got curious minds or Mm -hmm. and also collectors actually because collectors also have a curiosity and they want to research things and learn things it's really interesting Mm -hmm. actually well, we, we, we definitely want to include, you know, a whole chapter about um, the work that you're doing in our talk art book as well, because, oh, you know, I, th- I think I think we all have to start doing things to, you know, give as much platform as you can to different voices. Yeah, inclusivity and, yeah, totally. and you know, break down art labels and just mm-hmm. kind of get this out there but let's talk about you jen we've talked about all the the artists (laughs) but you as well as being a trailblazer and a hero you are also a trustee for the barrington farm trust in norfolk which is supporting learning disabled artists how long have you been involved with that and again hero you're gonna have so many letters after your name tell us about (laughs) barrington farm trust oh barrington farm's amazing it's uh based in walcott in Norfolk, kind of about five minutes from the sea. And it's a working farm. So some of the people there don't do art and they actually work on the farm and help with, you know, when the baby animals are born and everything, they feed the animals and they help to rear them and everything. And then there's a barn there and the barn has an art studio in it, which is an incredible space with a kiln in it and the artists are free to do, as in many studios, do whatever they want. So there's one guy called Michael Smith who quite often is found cutting up uh, pieces of fabric and sticking them back together again with bits of masking tape and winding and winding and winding until things are completely covered. And then he'll just hang it up and move it on to the next thing. And then also, so there's the art barn. Then they have another part of it where sometimes they do exercise classes, they might play boccia. So it's almost like a day centre with an art section and then a farm because lots of the people that attend with learned disabilities, the ones that are more able live in little cottages on the site. So three of them might live together in a cottage and then they have a carer that comes in and supports them. And then they have a home on site for the people that uh, have more severe disabilities and then they have 24-hour care and then those people are taken over to kind of the art barn to create art whenever they want to go and create it 
And so it's been going for years and years. I think since the 80s it's been going. And it's, you know, it's quite a small place and not many people will have heard of it and not many people visit the space because it's kind of very remote where it is. But they have some really incredible artists that come out of there and oh. one of them had some work um, in Norwich Art Museum and he got, it was in like an open exhibition and he had this really huge textile piece he does hand embroidery this guy called James Gladwell and he was selected from all these artists to win the top prize which for him was just amazing you know just a learned disabled artist that works out of this studio won the top prize and won you know some money and he was due to have a show there so it's just a really wonderful place it's a wonderful place to be involved with and I've been a trustee then maybe for about three years, but I've known about them a lot longer than that and I'm really good friends with them now as well. So it's What does being a trustee, what does that involve? I think in comparison to other places, because it's very small, uh, we don't do as much as other trustees of very big, powerful organisations might. But hmm. you have to read through kind of financial reports and they suggest different things they might want to do and you have to okay them and okay if they want to spend money on things and checking in on, you know, health and safety, risk assessments. It's it's not all glamour. <laughs> lots of reading. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, and it's a lot of listening. Uh, but important and, and a lot of listening, yeah. 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 And thinking what's best for the for the art barn and for the artists that attend there and thinking about mm. different opportunities that you can kind of get them into as well. So, yeah, it's great. Awesome. Amazing. You had a show in April uh, that you had where you put out a two-week call-out. I think, I think that's when we connected because um, mm-hmm. I was following you anyway and I think we talked after we went to Core Studio and we saw the pictures, mm-hmm. but there was a show mm-hmm. called Unlocked Unearthed where mm-hmm. you were you were looking for artists that defined themselves as uh, disabled or deaf to submit mm-hmm. an artwork, and you were you I were think, trying yeah. to find a lot of deaf artists, weren't you? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I've just done some research with some money I got from the Arts Council into kind of what is and isn't out there for disabled and deaf artists. And through talking to some deaf artists recently, and I was supporting a deaf artist with an arts council um, application as well, it, it occurred to me that, you know, there's barely any information in BSL that these, you know, these artists can never access any opportunities because there's nothing out there that explains the opportunities to them in a way that they can understand so not That's only British was, sign language BSL, yeah, British, isn't it? Yeah. British, so yeah. not yeah. yeah. So not only was it I was looking for disabled, I was trying to target deaf artists by having interpretation done by someone I know, so that mm-hmm. I could target those people. So it was really lovely that I was getting applications and queries from deaf artists to be included in that exhibition. So when I put the exhibition out online afterwards, I again got this um, interpreter to reinterpret the text I'd written about the exhibition into BSL so that the people selected that were deaf could again understand what I'd written about you know the exhibition putting out there so like I said I don't just I don't just do my gallery stuff because although it's my main passion uh, I can't live off you know I'm not one of these big dealers that's been going for years I'm a small newcomer dealer of the new generation of young dealers working in this field and because I've only been going for three years I don't have enough money to to warrant doing it full-time so I work as a freelance producer and curator with disabled and deaf artists and so this call-out was aimed at those to kind of 
put their work out there more and give them something to look forward to during lockdown. So, you know, everyone was in doom and gloom. I work with a lot of uh, very vulnerable artists and lots of them were told, you know, you have to stay in, you can't leave the house for, you know, 12 weeks or whatever. And lots of them became quite depressed and I wanted to do something to give people, you know, something to look forward to, to share with their friends. You know, my work is on this website, it's in this scene. Isn't that a wonderful thing that's happening at the moment? And so So that was the reason I wanted to do that. Jen, you're a wonderful thing. You're a wonderful thing. This is this is like and also Yeah, and you help people with their applications you, you go yeah. out of your way to assist people who are like yeah. confused by the whole process that's something that yeah, you yeah so I've right? just I've just done um, I'm working with an organization in London at the moment just doing a bit of freelance work for them and I've just written like an easy read version of their application because for me like inclusivity and people being able to understand information is so important to me so I don't mm. ever write things with you know any art jargon or any big words because I want the kind of text on my website to be understood by a lot of people so when I was working with this organization I said you know it would be really great if we put your application form into easy read which is like really simplified text with images next to it that kind of show what the text is doing so that someone with a learner disability or someone that can't take in long panels of text could read that and then would still be able to submit without having to ask too many extra questions so making things as inclusive as possible is like a real big passion of mine and making, making it so that everyone, yeah. yeah, making it accessible. So like with my Monochromatic Minds exhibition, I spent so long in London looking for an accessible venue because so many venues do not have ramps to get into, oh which is just God. absurd in this day and age. And then once mm-hmm. I found one, you know, with a ramp, I then did like an audio tour of the exhibition because I work with people with visual impairments and I wanted them to be able to, you know, get something more from the exhibition rather than, you know, just coming and chatting to people. So I did an audio tour that they could listen to. And then I did a film and I subtitled the film with five of the artists because I wanted people to hear from the artists that were in the exhibition. You know, what does art mean to you? Why do you do it? Share with people, you know, where where this comes from inside you. So I had this little like 10 minute film on repeat in the show and then I got some of the artists to give talks and one of the artists Mm. traveled down from Edinburgh and he's called James Allison and he attends a studio in Edinburgh and he came down and took part in the talk and he's never done anything like that in his life and you know he's got a learning disability and he prepared this little speech and he got up and you know it was a very simple speech you know I like art I like drawing birds I like drawing trees you know I like the color blue and then he got to the end and everyone clapped and he sobbed and he just went I'm oh so proud I'm so proud of myself for doing that and I was oh. like we're all so proud of you and it was just oh. a really magical moment that he was able to travel down to talk about his work in front of just a general art audience they weren't people Mm. you know that have all just come from the disability arts field there was people from all Mm. walks of life that had come to listen to him speak and it was just such a wonderful moment to hear that and then I mean he set me up and I was like I've got to talk again now (laughs) 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 he draws really beautiful simple pictures of birds they're amazing awesome well, you know what? Next time you have a show, Jen, I, I, I'll be up for doing the audio tour. If you tell me what to oh, say, if you give me amazing. a script, I'll do. Yeah. I'll do. I'll voice the audio tour for you. I'd, I'd absolutely love that. That would be amazing. 
I think that would be yeah. really exciting. Definitely. Oh, it might I, make there's more one people come you... to my show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we've got to. This is this is like. A, this is, we're going to like, this is just, this has got to happen. There's an yeah. artist you work with called Terence Wilde, oh, who, yeah. um, who's, um, describes himself or you describe his work, he's an adult survivor. Now, yeah. what does that term actually mean? And, and is that used to describe a lot of artists of a certain I'd say a lot way. of people would describe themselves as adult survivors. I mean, he was someone that was, um, abused as a child, and so, and he suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder because of that and also has mental health issues. So he, he calls himself an adult survivor. And so I use that description because he uses that description to describe himself. But his work's Gosh. incredible. His work was in my show, but he's also someone that I, I represent 25 artists in total. And he's one of the artists uh that I represent more fully as opposed to the people that were just within that black and white show. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I've just done a series of mini interviews with artists that I support on my website as well. And he was mm -hmm. the first one that I did. And I was asking them, you know, what have you been doing in lockdown? And I was like, oh, based on talk art, you know, what's <laughs> and took something, you know, you what, have you, been, what yep. have you, what have you been doing? You know, what's your new skill and stuff. So I've been doing that with each of the artists, but Terence, uh, I've known him for years and years. And as soon as I set up my gallery, I was like, really want you to come on board with me. And he was like, of course, Jen. And I just, I really champion what he does because he creates these really incredible, really detailed work. And he has two sides to what he does. So he, he does this colourful work that he says is like his money-making work. I mean, he doesn't sell it for a lot of money. It sells between, you know, 50 to 200 pounds. But it's money that, you know, he makes and he knows it's more likely going to sell than his black and white work, which is the work that I obviously prefer. But his black mm -hmm. and white work is all to do with his mental health and what's happened to him throughout his life and often has quite negative things put into it or wording or negative uh, drawings and sayings and things. And I think it's really powerful work. And that's why I love to show that work because not because I'm trying to like scare people, but there's lots of people in his position that don't want to talk about it or think they're alone. And I think by sharing his work, it's, and, and lots of people said that about the film, because he was in the film in my exhibition, he was sharing something about them himself. And lots of people could relate to that. And they thought they were alone. And after watching the film, they realized they're not alone in what they've been through and what, you know, what they go through on a daily yeah. basis. And Terence yeah. is someone that's quite open and talk to talk about that so he's someone that you know I love to work with quite a lot because he's very generous in sharing what's happened so that it can somehow help people other people along mm. along the way oh, wow Amazing. and also he works in a hospital with other people with mental health issues and runs mm. art workshops for them and I think he says it's that's really great because when they say something to him about how they're feeling, he says, I know exactly how they're feeling because I've been there myself and they really relate to me in that manner. So, yeah. Jen. Jen, Jen, Jen. Uh, all right. <laughs> I feel like I've God, depressed you. <laughs> no, you haven't. You've inspired. You've inspired. This is really an amazing chat. You're an incredible... Incredible woman. Um, so I wanted to ask, ask Rob. Oh, can I just quickly ask Rob? Rob, have you been to the Shell Grotto in Margate? Yeah, I love it. 
Ah, oh, good. Times. Good. Yeah, I didn't know whether you'd ever heard of it or not, because that would be classed as like an outsider environment. Yeah, totally. And actually, um, they used to have seances in there. Yeah. Um, there's photographs of, of a seance actually currently mm-hmm. like wallpapered on the wall in there. Um, mm-hmm. And it made me think of the artist you were talking about earlier, you know, this idea of like spirit guides. and Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, and Tracy Emin is a big fan of it. And she's yeah, I heard it in her, her work. And she's also yeah. done a yeah a little podcast with um, mm-hmm. Gemma Kearney, who lives here in Margate. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I, I love it. And I make every single person that visits Margate that I know. I still haven't been there, Rob. I still but haven't been there. Hasn't. It's Russell. <laughs> it's me. But do we know the <laughs> artist who did it, or is it like so a busy. secret thing? It Was kind that a thing that's like discovered... A- it's like 180 years old, isn't it? But I think they, there's not much known about the history. It says like there's all these different stories and it's kind of been muddled over the years. And I don't think anyone ever knows the true the true story anymore about, you know, how it started no. and, and why it, it's it there. Could well, it could well be to- tourism, really. Um, or, mm. or it could be, there's loads of, you know, ideas about it. Yeah. But it is really impressive. And it's actually the kind of thing that Russell is going to go crazy for. Um, oh, completely, he has, completely. He hasn't, he hasn't been there yet, but next time. <laughs> I think I've always got the dogs, so I feel like <laughs> I know, well, that is actually <laughs> three dogs in the shell the last, grotto. The last two or three times, he's had like three dogs with him. They're oh. giant, yeah. almost bigger than me. So yes, that yes. Wasn't they were, they were, I don't know what they'd be like around shells everywhere. Um, so, well, Jen, Jen, we ask every guest coming on some really exciting questions. Mm-hmm. The first one is, if you could do an art heist, if you could steal... Mm-hmm nicely any work of art in the world all for mm-hmm. yourself what would it be and why see mine's quite obscure i've been thinking about this but ever mm. since i saw it i've loved it there's an artist in the Prinzhorn collection which is in germany which is a collection of pieces from institutions and there's an artist called agnes richter who did this little embroidered jacket it's called the little jacket and it was embroidered in 1895 And there's barely anything known about this artist other than the fact that she was in this institution and was born in uh, the 1840s, I believe. And so she has this little jacket and it's like, I I believe it was a straight jacket that she's cut up and made into like a little peplumed jacket. And then she stitched all over it with thread that apparently came from her socks, but who knows. And stitched all over it biographical information so on the sleeves of the jacket the text is all on the outside but on the actual jacket itself it's all on the inside and because it's so old um it's kind of half of the you can't really read what it says and i don't think it made much sense in the first place but it's just a really beautiful uh art a piece that i saw in an exhibition there called madness is female and it's stunning. It's a stunning piece of work and they won't let it tour anymore because it's so fragile and it's so old. So it has to stay in the collection. So everyone should Google that because it's a beautiful, I mean, I couldn't ever do it. I'd have to put it in the corner and never touch it. (laughs) (laughs) And also what I love... But it's a miniature jacket, like a doll's (laughs) jacket. No, she used used to wear it. It's human size because it was like a straight jacket cut up into, you know, a jacket and apparently she used to wear it. But when I was at university doing my degree, you had to um, do a a, a piece to go, a a visual piece to go alongside your dissertation. Because my dissertation was about outsider art, I did my own interpretation of this little jacket. So I made a Mm. Victorian petticoat, cut it up and made it into a blouse and then stitched all over about this Victorian lady's life who then Mm. suffered a breakdown and, and did all that sort of stuff. 
And in 2011, my embroidered shirt was hung alongside this shirt in the Prince Hall <gasps> collection in Germany, no. which was well wow. exciting. That's so cool. <laughs> so that where was, is it know, now, Jen? Is it now? Ta- is that doing like the tour? It's left the, left the original behind. Now that's doing the tour, the new life. <laughs> Mine's like tucked away in a drawer somewhere. <laughs> Oh. No. oh, I know. Well, I we know. will. We will. Congratulations. Definitely, <laughs> we will definitely post an image of Agnes Richter's um, jacket, oh, but also we need to get an image of yours, of okay. your jacket, <laughs> yeah. with you wearing it. And I could <laughs> never fit my arms in it. I made it too thin on the arms, so I could never. And it was it was it was it from your own straight jacket or was yeah, it? Yeah, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I just made a petticoat to begin with and then cut the petticoat up and made it into a Victorian-style blouse. Awesome. So, no. Wow. Well, the next question we ask every guest is very simple. What is your favourite colour? Uh, I'd have to say black, which, you know, is that a mm. colour? Is it not a colour? I don't know. But I'm very pale. I'm very pale with red hair, so I have to wear quite dark, bold colours, I feel. Oh, really? Otherwise, I just look like a ghost. So I live in a lot of black. Uh, Not so much green, mainly navy blue and black. (laughs) Not very exciting on the colour front there. Is that the black and white theme for your collection? Yeah, I feel maybe that's what you know comes through in my work as well. And you, oh, you share well, that right. favourite colour with Jonathan Lyndon Chase, who we interviewed recently, because their favourite colour is black as well. And they actually painted the bedroom um, completely black as well, black. which I thought was very cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that might be a bit scary. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think it's, they feel safe. It's, it's, yes, horses for courses. Um, so even well, though we're not asking was... everyone at the moment... What um yeah. because lockdown's kind of basically beginning to end now, but mm. what 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 is a hidden skill that you found during lockdown as you've referenced it on your own blog? Have I? Oh yeah, the question. I thought you meant I've yeah. referenced yeah, yeah, it yeah, myself. Yeah. Um I have been thinking about this as well. There was two things I'd say there were skills. Um one of my friends teaches clay classes and each week she's been dropping uh, a kilogram of clay off and a worksheet in order to make something out no of way. clay, which has been wow. amazing. So I've made a salt pig, I've made a jug, I've made a pinch pot. Wow. So, and oh, then wow. she takes she takes them away and fires them and then asks you what colour glaze you want on them and then glazes it and then brings it back to your house again. So oh, I've got a lovely cool. little collection <gasps> of clay objects. And then cool. the That's other a, thing is... she doing is, that for everyone or just you? Is this a thing no, like yeah, I mean, you have to pay. It was like £5 each week for clay. Um, you, anyone That's could sign great. up to it. Yeah, it was amazing. This is in Manchester? I, this is in Manchester, yeah. She's called Sarah Crosby. Love her. I love and then, that. And then, yeah, and then the other thing is, I normally I would go to Lindy Hop classes each week which is, uh, Lindy Hop is like, you know, 1920s Charleston dancing. Wartime dancers. Yeah. 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 And so I've been doing online classes, learning things like the Tranky Do and the Shim Sham, which are like jazz routines. (laughs) (laughs) So I've been dancing around my living room, learning jazz routines. Oh, that's classic. (laughs) Oh my God. You are inspiring on every single level. (laughs) Um, there's there's another artist I do want to talk about before we go that yeah. uh, makes me want to go to India. When, when we were talking, mm-hmm. we were talking about an artist called Neck Chand. Mm-hmm. And he is known for creating 
the second most visited tourist attraction in India, behind the Taj mm-hmm. Mahal, is the Chandigarh Rock Garden. Can we talk mm-hmm. a bit about that and how long you've been working with his estate? Or did you actually work with him when he was still alive? I don't know. No, I do, yeah. Well, Nick Chand, yeah. So he's an Indian artist who lived to the ripe old age of 91. So he only died um, maybe like four or five years ago. And mm-hmm. when he was 34 years old, he was working as a road inspector in India. And then he decided to one day, he found this like plot of land behind a wall and so started collecting some river stones in different shapes and sizes and different bits of materials he could find, bits of broken pot and everything. And then for 18 years, he worked in secret to build what is now known as the Rock Garden of Chandigarh, which is now, you know, 40 acres in size and has over 2,000 sculptures in there. And he built it all by himself for 18 years. And then once it was found, the authorities, you know, originally wanted to get rid of it and then were talked around into keeping it. And thank God they did because, you know, it's such a popular tourist attraction. Mm. But Mm -hmm. he built these figures so they would be like a bicycle armature, like a bike wheel or something underneath it. And then he'd build up the cement and sand over the top of it. And then they'd be turned into people. So some of them might have mosaic, broken bits of uh, crockery, mosaiced all over them with faces. And then he he put eyes and maybe put a bit of shell in the eye. And then some of them are known as like the bangle ladies. So he'd find discarded bangles and broken bits of bangle and cover them in all these brightly coloured bits of broken bangle. And they'd be like one next to the other, next to the other. And they'd be like rows and rows of these people and there's monkeys that he used to do as well and then after a while the neck chand foundation was set up and the neck chand foundation allowed it so that volunteers could go over and help support neck chand as he got older to kind of finish building the rock garden and fix some of the broken pieces there Mm-hmm. So there's like these huge, massive, you know, rock mounds with like waterfalls over the top of them. Yes, there's like swings incredible. hanging off things, you know, massive swings for humans to kind of hang off. It just looks, I mean, I've never been, I really want to go, but it just looks yeah, like the most amazing so place. So again, mm-hmm. that's known as an outsider environment. Um, and yeah, when and he you died, with he was his really estate, celebrated. So you have his work. I have his work now. Um, so not, me- I mean, unfortunately, most of his work is in the rock garden. So the pieces that came out were pieces that were like surplus to, you know, ones he created when he was there. So there's not actually that many on the market to be sold. So some mm, might have right. come out and gone to an exhibition. I think at one point they couldn't afford to send the the. Uh, neck chans people couldn't afford to bring them back to india so i think some of those ones then came onto the market because there was nowhere for them to go uh but they're just incredible uh Mm. amazing pieces that are very simple but bring so much joy when you look at them (laughs) yeah and it's also such a commitment because it was such a large-scale sort of vision and for so many years with nobody knowing Mm. he was doing it so you know actually how did he do it how did he get away with like not like not i don't understand how no one found him for 18 years and he'd be like wheeling all this stuff and wheelbarrows around there's got to be a movie in that someone's got to play that that's like (laughs) that's an incredible role for someone (laughs) 
Definitely. It's like it's like it's like the the guy in Islington, the the mole man, you know, that Sue Webster bought and David David Ajay, the architect, renovated the house, but but he sort oh, of dug yeah. under the under house, under the ground, didn't and it? then did drawings and things on the walls. And I think Sue Webster has um has actually like preserved it all, all these tunnels and things. And oh I think one God. day a bus drove over the road or something, and there was a huge hole in the road. So um because he'd been digging so much underground, so these these wow. stories do happen. And it also <laughs> makes me think about that Jerry's Pompeii, you know that that flat. Yeah, that was in West that's Park in London. Last year. Yeah. Um, Did yeah. that get you know, saved? That got saved, trailer. didn't it? I think oh. it got saved. Yeah, I think he had enough money found to say uh, to save it. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that's good. But there's, there's loads yeah, of little random a, places in London. There's uh, Stephen Wright. Have you ever been to Stephen Wright's house? The House of Dreams in no. East Dulwich. No. Oh, my God, no. you need to Google it. <laughs> he opens his house maybe like eight to ten times a year. It's a, just a house on a street in East Dulwich. And he, the, bot, the ground floor of his house is just covered I mean, I don't want to tell you too much because I want you to Google it and see the pictures. But it's Stephen Wright with a W of Wright, House of Dreams. And I think when he passes away, I believe the National Trust is taking it over. Wow. Mm. Is it all glitter? He, Is that what I'm imagining? There's like, like bottle caps and everything mice. and uh, mosaic things. It. It's but incredible. It's incredible. And he makes these incredible sculptures inside it. But people go round to his house and donate things. So... I remember he told wow. me someone, someone's mum or something died and he had like 15 pairs of her glasses. And so he took all these glasses around to Stephen and then Stephen's built them into the wall there or something. And so this man goes oh around there God. to like visit his mum's glasses as though it's kind of like oh. a bit of a shrine. So there's all these things that people have donated that were things of people's they know and he builds them into this kind of incredible space that he's got. And then if you go up, you're not allowed to go upstairs, but upstairs in his house, it's like minimal white walls, like completely opposite to what's going on downstairs. It's <laughs> two, amazing. The two sides of his brain are like, amazing. there's like a calmness and a, yeah, wow. <laughs> But you should, yeah, he opens his house to the public like maybe eight times a year or something, and you pay to go and visit this, you know, incredible place that he's created. Amazing. Amazing. Well, thank wow, you so inspiring. much. This has been such a wonderful hour and a half together. I have loved every minute, and I really oh, hope we get good. to do this again sometime. You know what? We should all go to India and make a TV show. Yeah, the, totally. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that would be That's so a good. really good idea. Yeah. You yeah, find the money, really I'll come with you. Talk up special. Yeah, big time. <laughs> And I really hope you get to come to Margate and we can go and see that show together. Oh, yeah. I'm, as soon Rotto as I well. can get down there, I'm totally coming down there. <laughs> Definitely. Awesome. I watched Amazing. the online tour, which wasn't quite the same. <laughs> oh. No. Wonderful. No. Well, well thank, thank you so, so much, Jen. Much. So Jennifer you're Gilbert, on, uh, we love you. <laughs> you're on Instagram, Jennifer Lawrence Gallery, anyone listening? And Lauren. all images we Lauren. talked about today. Jennifer Lauren. Lauren. Sorry. Here we go. <laughs> You're not Jennifer Lawrence. I'm thinking of the movie star. Uh, you're on the at Jennifer Lauren gallery on Instagram. And then for everything else we're talking about, please go to the at Talk Art page on Instagram and mm -hmm. at Talk Art podcast on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Right, Rob? Wonderful. Yep. Well, and yep. do we know your handle? It's at J underscore L gallery. Great. Got it. Brilliant. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be Thank back so much, very everyone. soon. Jennifer, that's been Cheers, amazing. Jen. Thank you. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks. We'll be back Bye. soon. Bye. 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 You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamant and Russell Tovey. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in this episode. 
Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com